Well, good morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the response. Um, you know, after going out to Honduras, you know, I'm, I'm actually really excited about the initiative that we're starting and, and all that we're doing, and, and I think it's going to be great for our church uh, to hear all these things. Um, you know, currently we're going through the book of First John, and uh, John doesn't only want us to uh, learn more information or more facts. Uh, what he's trying to do is, in a church, in the early church that was riddled with anxiety and uncertainty and a lot of questions and doubts, what he's actually trying to provide is assurance for the people. And that's what the early church needed, and that's what we need, I believe, uh, more than before, assurance. And if you've been in the church for any amount of time, uh, I think there are a lot of phrases that you might have heard. Um, maybe uh, you've seen it on posters. Maybe you've uh, heard it from uh, sermons. Maybe you sang it in songs or on coffee mugs. You've heard a lot of these cliche Christian phrases. Uh, phrases like this. God wants you to have an amazing life. He has a plan for you. Uh, maybe, maybe you've heard phrases uh, like this. Uh, God will use you in amazing ways. God will never let you down. And uh, for some of you who are like a little bit more old school Christian, uh, God will nev- never let you down. Uh, when you hear that, you automatically think of, you know, the footprints on the sand, that little poster thing. Yeah. So th- these great phrases, and, and there's nothing wrong with these phrases. Uh, I use these phrases myself. They're absolutely true. But I think what happens is when these aren't properly nuanced, um, or maybe when they're a little bit overemphasized in some way, the Christian life actually can become distorted and skewed. See, uh, uh, I remember uh, growing up in church, uh, uh, I remember one night in particular, I I know a lot of my youth students uh, don't remember anything I say, which is okay, Um, but there was one particular night where I remember as a youth student, uh, our youth pastor came up and he took out uh, something, an ancient device called an overhead projector. Okay, do some of you guys remember that? Okay, super old school. Um, This is before the projector, before ProPresenter, all this stuff, but he took out this overhead projector. And uh, on it, he, uh, he, he tried to explain something. And uh, it was so hard because, uh, I don't know if you've ever worked the overhead projector, but you put slides on and it reflects like backwards. And then if you mess up, people like give you a dirty look, right? Um, but he was writing something on top. And at the top of the overhead projector, he wrote, the Christian life. And he said, this is what the Christian life looks like. And then he proceeded to draw essentially a diagonal line from this end to this end, just like this. And he marked it all the way through. And and through it, he drew little blips, little dips. But altogether, he said, this is what Christianity should look like. As a Christian, you should grow in holiness. You should grow in sanctification. God should be purifying you. The fruits of the Spirit should show up in your life more and more each day. This is the picture of what a Christian should look like. And I remember seeing that. And I remember... I remember that. It stuck, it stuck with me. And that's a great idealistic picture. And then I remember being in church for several years and eventually decades and seeing the reality of people that I walk with. And I see people, Christian students, who confess to me their sin and they're broken. And they come to me and they're like, I, I didn't know I could do this. I didn't know this could happen. And then I walk and I see Christian leaders, praise leaders, pastors fall into devastating sin, horrible, 
destroys their family. It, it, it puts their marriage on, on the rocks. And all this stuff is happening. And then I see that picture of a Christian. And I see that Christian life. And, and I get really confused because the, the first picture of this, up, everything's upward trending. It's very nice, but it seems a little bit naive. And then on the other hand, the picture of this tragedy of people stumbling, falling into sin, even hitting rock bottom, that seems a little bit more truthful, but very tragic. And so what is the picture? What does a Christian life really look like? Because it seems kind of confusing. That there, are, there are pictures like this, and then there are pictures like that. And so what does the Christian life truly look like? How are we to make of it? Because oftentimes I see myself wanting to compare and see what my story looks like compared to someone else. And so, if you have your Bible, this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to be in the book of 1 John, chapter 2. What does the Christian life really look like? And, and I think it would be really helpful to turn to someone who has a lot of years, a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment, uh, someone who has been and seen thousands, tens of thousands of Christians, maybe someone who's even walked with Jesus. And the person we're going to look at today is uh, the Apostle John. And we're going to look at what he actually wrote to the early church. Um, and, and these aren't just his ideas and opinions about what the Christian life looks like, but God is speaking through him to the church to communicate what God wants the Christian to be like. And this morning, we're going to look at two things. Two things that God wants in the life of every Christian regardless of era, regardless of culture, regardless of age, regardless of social economic standing. Uh, God wants two things in the life of every Christian, and it could be boiled down to these two things. And the first is this. God wants Christians to, this is very simple, God wants Christians to believe in what Jesus did. Believe in what Jesus did. So let's start with the first two verses, and let's see what John, the elderly elder, writes to the church. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. It says this. He writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So John says, don't sin right up front. I write these things to you so you do not sin. And then immediately after he says, if you do sin, you have Jesus. And he begins to describe who Jesus is. And he actually goes uh, into great length describing in detail what Jesus has done. And he says here, Jesus is uh, three things. Our advocate, he is righteous, and he is the propitiation. And what does that mean for the Christian? What does that mean for the Christian life? Uh, let's, go, let's go through it, okay? Uh, the, the first is this. Jesus is the advocate. Tim Keller, he uh, uses this term to help us better understand what this advocate means. He says an advocate is actually a legal proxy. Someone appointed to stand in a place of another and make an account. Uh, and, and it's not someone who only speaks up for someone else. It's someone who is actually personally tied to another person. This is what an advocate is. And when we fall into sin, we need someone to speak up for us. And, and I think the typical picture is this. Uh, and, and all of us have heard it if you've been in the church uh, for any amount of time. Uh, imagine the heavenly court. God sitting there as the judge. Uh, you are on trial. And Jesus, 
your great attorney is trying to speak up for you and defend you. Why? Why do we even need an advocate? Why do we need someone to speak up for us? Why can't we speak up for ourselves? And it's because of this. God is the judge, and he is absolutely, completely holy and righteous. We can't go to God. We, in some sense, even in the Old Testament, people couldn't even go into a, a room with God, even be in his presence. The only person who can come in contact with God is someone who is righteous like God. And that's why right after John says, Jesus is your advocate, he says, Jesus is righteous. The only way for an advocate or an attorney to even work is, it doesn't just need to be someone who is articulate and who could speak. It has to be someone who is righteous that can stand before God and actually make a plea. That's who Jesus is. And he, he continues and he gives this huge word uh, to actually further explain why he can speak on our behalf. And he gives us this theological bomb. Um, and some, of, some of you might have heard this word before, but it's the word propitiation. Propitiation. And uh, propitiation, it's a theological word. It's very loaded. It's uh, in some sense twofold, and it means this. Uh, in one sense, it is the removal of God's wrath against sinners. And number two, it is also restoring relationship with God. And, you know, all my years of seminary training and uh, hearing sermons and researching and reading commentaries, all this stuff— um, and it boils down to, the, to this example of propitiation that, that I think is, uh, is better than anything I've heard. Um, and, and bear with me. Uh, just keep in mind that, uh, you know, I'm a youth pastor. And so just keep, keep that in mind as I share this illustration of propitiation. Uh, I can't think of a better way to describe it uh, than uh, when I was in college and I went with my friends to Big Bear. We went on this trip. Um, and uh, we went up there and we were hanging out, playing games at night. And, uh, you know, I, I come from a, a, a different context, and in that context, uh, when you play games, uh, you lose, and uh, if you lose, uh, you, you just lose. That, that's it, okay? Nothing really happens. But in this particular context, um, when you lose, it's not just a loss, uh, punishment. There's, there's some sort of punishment that, that you have to do. And I remember on this trip, um, uh, we didn't have much. Uh, it was kind of bare bones. We're just college students. Um, and they're like, all right, you guys lost. Your team lost. Uh, what you need to do is uh, you guys have to suffer. Like, like we're going to make you do something. And we're like, all right, what, what is it? And they're like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do uh, this. And then they went to the kitchen and they got a cup. Some of you guys are, already know what I'm talking about. Uh, they got a cup and then they put in like yogurt, uh, just like whatever we had. They put in like soy sauce. They put in hot sauce. Uh, I think like people spit in it. They like went to the bathroom. I don't know what they did in there. Um, and then they came back out and they're like, okay, your team lost. Here you go. The cup. Your, your team has to finish this. Good luck. And at that point, you know what? What I really want to do is, I just want to be like, you know what? This is this is dumb. Like, for, forget. Like, well, like why? We didn't even agree to this before playing. Like, like what is? But you have to do it. Like, you have. Like, the night will not move on unless you do it. Like, this has to happen. They'll never let it go. And so uh, I remember on our team, it was me, another dude, and then two girls. And I so badly, it, it was gross. Okay, I so badly wanted to be like. Ladies first, right? Like, but but I, I didn't I didn't do that. Um, and the other guy, his name is Sam. Okay, um, he is like 
I, I don't know what, what took, uh, what like possessed him that day, but he was like, you know what? Bring it on, right? And he, he's like, give me, give me the cup. And so I was like, please, please. He took it. And I, you know, uh, my hunch is this, it's never been confirmed, but I'm almost certain he had a crush on one of these girls that they were on the same team with, but he took this cup and then he's like, okay. And then he started drinking it and then he, he just kept going. And then we're all like, ooh, like we're like cheering for him as he's like chugging it down. And I'm like, I'm the most excited, right? I'm the, because I, I, that has to come to me. And he's just going, going. And at the end, he finishes the whole thing and then he, sl- he just puts it on the table and then we're, we're all like, oh my God, like, that was awesome. That was amazing, incredible. And, and of course, I was the happiest person in the room. And that silly, ridiculous story is a picture of what propitiation truly is. See, in that moment, do you know what happened? Sam, he was my best friend that night. Sam, he was the propitiation for our loss. Because we lost, and the punishment that we had to face was that cup, he took it all on himself. But see, he was on my team. In some sense, he deserved that. But Jesus, the propitiation for our sins, he wasn't deserving of punishment at all. But what he did is he said, I know the punishment that you're going to face because of your sin it's the wrath of God. It's not just a, a cup, a, a random concoction. It's the anger and full wrath of God. And I will take it fully. I will drink every drop so that nothing is left for you. I will do that for you. And John is laboring. You see in these three words, advocate, righteous, propitiation. He, he's painting for us a picture of what Jesus has done. He's highlighting it. And John Piper says this, If Jesus Christ is your attorney, then his portfolio is his propitiation. That's the picture of what we have, of what Jesus has done. And see, John is writing, and he's actually a pretty simple guy. And most New Testament scholars will say he's very easy to understand. He doesn't use a lot of fancy terms. But this is, he's really trying to hammer home this point. Why? And I think he's actually speaking not just to the people who think the Christian life is like this, just upward trending always. I actually believe he's, it sounds like he's speaking to someone who has stumbled, fell into sin, maybe hit rock bottom. It sounds like he's speaking to to that person and he's saying to that person, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter how many times, no matter how deep you've fallen into sin, Jesus, he's taking your wrath fully and you, you, you have right standing with God if you turn, if you repent, if you confess. That's what you have. It seems like John is legitimately speaking to that individual who is, who is weighed down by their sin, shame, guilt, condemnation. He's saying that Christ is your advocate. And his plea, his righteous plea is his propitiation. See, attorneys, they usually, uh, they usually argue for innocence on behalf of what that person has done. But Jesus, our advocate, what he does is he admits guilt and he points to what he has done. It, it, it's, it's somewhat radically different. And, and I think what happens for a lot of us, if we're honest, is uh, this happens to me all the time. See, Satan, 
he's the accuser. And when we fall into sin, he whispers things, he gives us thoughts of questions and things like, how could I do that? Am I even Christian? Am I saved? Will God really forgive me again? Is he this gracious? Is he this good? Or is he sick of me? Is he tired of me? And as much as Satan is the accuser, Christ is our advocate on our behalf, standing before God the Father. And Jesus, as Keller says, he is not making a plea for mercy. He's asking for justice based on what he has accomplished, his finished work on our behalf. The Christian life, the first point, God wants Christians to believe in what Jesus has done, believe in what Jesus did. The second thing, uh, and we're going to move on to the next part of the passage. The second thing that we're going to look at is this. Uh, God not only wants us to believe in what Jesus did, but he wants us to become who Jesus is, to become like Jesus. And so uh, the, the next few verses we're going to look at is 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. God wants Christians to become like Jesus. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected or the love of God is made complete. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so what John is saying here is, is this. Christians look at Jesus not just as the object or person of their propitiation, but Christians look at Jesus as the object and person of uh, imitation, someone to follow after. See, uh, if, you, if you just look at these verses, verses three and, 3 and 4, it's talking about how we should keep the commandments of God. And in the following verse, it talks about how we should keep his words uh, and then the, the uh, final verse, verse 6, uh, the last verse we're going to look at today, it talks, how, it talks about how Christians should walk in the way just as Jesus has walked. And all of this language is essentially talking about being like him. Who else kept all of God's commandments? Who else kept all of God's words and did everything the Father wanted? Who else walked like Jesus? No one except him. And John is saying here, Christians aren't, He's saying this, if you truly believe in what Jesus did, then you will become like who he is. That, that, that's what John is saying. That, that's what the, the, the picture of Christianity in some sense should look like. Um, and, and see, uh, when I think about this, becoming like Jesus, keeping all his commands, keeping all his words, walking like Jesus, when I think about this, uh, it's actually, um, it, it only takes me a few moments to feel very uncomfortable. And uh, Francis Chan, uh, my, my Chinese brother, okay, uh, he says this. Uh, he says, we admire, uh, I love this quote, he says, we admire Jesus for who he is. When we think about Jesus, wow, we admire him. He's so inspirational. But then he asked this question. But do you really want to become like him? Do you truly want your life to look like Jesus though? Because Jesus... He was the most humble person ever. He washed the feet of his disciples, even those who were going to deny and betray him. 
Jesus was the most generous person ever. He gave everything he had, even himself, onto others. Jesus was the most radically countercultural person who ever existed. He touched the sick, he cared for the poor. He taught things that no one else listened to. He, he, he spoke in a way that turned people completely off. He, he lived a difficult life. He was bad-mouthed by a lot of people to the point where people wanted to kill him. He didn't live in upper class. He didn't even live in middle class. He was homeless. Jesus was homeless, walking streets. This is his life. He's talking to prostitutes. He's meeting with people who are demon-possessed, people who are mentally ill or... or uh, relationally broken. He's meeting with all of these kinds of people. And we look at the picture of Jesus's life and we're like, wow, that is so admirable. That's so inspirational. But is this a picture of a person that we actually want to follow and become like? And John says, if you're a Christian, if you're truly repentant, then somehow the picture of Jesus, when we read that, it actually becomes attractive we're like, yes, as crazy as that sounds, yes, I do want to become like that. I do want to forgive people. I do want to love radically. I do want this life. I want to live it. And believing in, in what Jesus did, it means becoming like who he is. The two are actually inseparable. And, and, and I believe in this particular section, he's actually affirm, affirming not the person who stumbled or hit rock bottom. He's actually, all of this, keeping the commands, keeping the word, walking like Jesus, it does kind of sound like what my youth pastor said in the beginning. It does sound very upward trending, like, like we're going to grow, we're going to continue to walk, we're going to continue to be like Christ, we're going to be righteous like he is righteous. It sounds like that is absolutely true. And yes, it is. But, but I think I would say this, and I think John is saying this. The Christian life does not make you immune to falling into sin. And at the same time, the Christian life does not instantly transform us into Christ. See, the picture of everything being upward trending, like Google or Apple stock, like that picture, it's not always true for everyone. And the other picture of people falling into sin and hitting rock bottom. Of course, that's also not the picture for everyone. And some people know that. And and I've heard people in Christians say quotes like this. They'll say, of course, we should try to be holy, but at the same time, we do stumble in sin. And they'll say things like, but the highs are higher than before and the lows are not as low as you progress, as you walk. And I had a professor by the name of David Pallison, and he uh, came up with this beautiful analogy, and he says this, the Christian life is actually like a yo-yo in the hands of a man walking up a flight of stairs. And that's another picture that is true, absolutely true for some people. But I actually think John isn't trying to give us a picture at all. I don't think John is trying to say everything's going to be always upward trending. I don't think he's trying to say everything is going to, everyone's going to hit rock bottom at one point. And I don't think he's even saying this yo-yo roller coaster up and down analogy, as great as it is. And it could be very helpful for some. See, I think when we look at the whole scope of the Bible, people fall into different categories and all seem to be true. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all picture or template that we have for the Christian life. For example, uh, let's go with upward trending, okay? 
There are a lot of characters in the Bible that I could use, but I'll use this. Joseph, his life definitely seems to be upward trending. Like he started by being thrown into a pit by his brothers, then being sold into slavery, and then eventually climbing the ranks to being second in command. That is very upward trending, his life. That is true. At the same time, the picture of someone hitting rock bottom after walking with God, that is also very real. King David, he took out Goliath. He was anointed as king. He had a covenant with God, and then he fell into adultery and had a man killed. And that is a man after God's own heart. Another example of hitting rock bottom, Peter. He walked with God. He's a disciple, one of the 12 in the inner circle. What he did is at the end, he denied Jesus and he fell. And Jesus said to him, still knowing that, he looked at him and said, you're the rock on which I will build my church. See, there's the picture of upward trending. There's the picture of people hitting rock bottom at times. And even the up and down roller coaster yo-yo picture, Jonah, okay? He's called by God. Wow, amazing. And then he runs away, gets swallowed by a fish, and then he goes and preaches, and then revival breaks out. That's another huge high. And then at the end of the story, he gets angry because a worm ate a tree that gave him shade. Up and down. See, I don't think John is trying to tell us there is a picture of what the Christian life looks like, or there are categories of what the Christian life looks like. I think what John is trying to tell us is something much different. See, at the end of the gospel, his gospel, John, he actually gives us a story in John 20, uh, chapter 21. After Peter denies Jesus, after Jesus resurrects and restores him, Jesus actually tells Peter, you are going to die for me. You're going to get martyred for me. And then at that moment, what Peter did is, and this is something I would probably do if, if Jesus said that, he turned to John and he said, well, what about him? You just told me that I'm going to die for you. What about him? What is his life going to look like? And Jesus essentially said to him, what I do with him has nothing to do with your story. In other words, what his life will look like may look nothing like what your life looks like. But follow me. But follow me. See, the Christian life, I don't believe it's a picture or a template. And I know a lot of times, even my youth students, they're like, they hear the testimonies and they hear people's stories and they're like, oh, my life, it doesn't really look like that. I don't really know if I'm a Christian because it's so different. Uh, and, and they're kind of waiting to hear a story or waiting for someone to share that resonates with them. But the Christian life isn't about a picture at all. John is saying the Christian life is about a person. It's about Jesus. It's about truly believing in what he's done. And it's about becoming who he is. That's what the Christian life looks like. I don't know where the highs or lows are going to be. I don't know where the twists and turns will be. I don't know if you're going to hit rock bottom or everything will be upward trending or your life is going to look like a yo-yo. I don't know. But for every Christian, they're marked by God, knowing what he's done and becoming more like him. And see, when we look at the gospel and how it leads us into godliness, I think for a lot of us this morning, it's, I think there's two implications. I think for some of us who maybe are, have stumbled into sin this week, 
Maybe some of us feel really burdened by the weight of sin. We feel very condemned. Maybe some of us hit rock bottom. Maybe it was this month. Maybe it was earlier this year. Maybe it was years ago. We did something so bad, unthinkable. We didn't even know we were capable of doing something like that. And all this time, we're still wondering, did, does God forgive me? Like, of course, I, I, sing, I, I, hear his, I, I, I sing these songs. I know all these things. But am I truly forgiven? And I think the gospel says, absolutely. If you come into repentance, Christ is your righteous advocate, your propitiation. He's took and paid the consequences of your sin in full, and you have right standing before God. You can be comforted in that. You can be comforted by the gospel. As broken as you are, all the hidden sins that no one knows about, you can come before God and be comforted by the gospel. That's how beautiful it is. And at the same time, for some of us, I think we're living maybe a little bit too comfortably. Maybe we've grown used to our lifestyle and maybe materialism or wealth or comfort or luxury has become something that we care about or achievement. And we don't really want to actually become like Jesus anymore. And what we need is maybe to be challenged by the Holy Spirit. Maybe we've given up our disciplines altogether, like prayer, reading the Bible, maybe prioritizing church, maybe really taking into heart discipling our children or community accountability, serving in the church. Maybe we think singing here, all these things, looking like Jesus is no longer very important for whatever reason. And maybe God is calling you to obedience, to follow his commands in full and to walk like Jesus walked, to live like Jesus lived. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, but maybe he's challenging us also because the gospel not only comforts us when we fall into the worst sins that are beyond what we could imagine, but the gospel also challenges and convicts us to live like Jesus. And so the Christian life, it's, it's not a picture. It's, it's not a, there's not a template for this. The Christian life is about being in relationship with a person and knowing what he's done and becoming like him. Let's pray.